0: Okay, if you would, join me opening your Bible to Luke. Can't help but get out of my head. Uh, I think it was Riley on Wednesday. He's like, what book are we in? Yeah, we're in Luke. We're still in Luke. We are trekking our way through the book of Luke. And so if you're visiting with us today, this is what we do. We go through a book at a time, passage at a time, verse at a time. And uh, we do that because we want to know every part of God's word. We don't want to skip the easy ones and... Or skip the hard ones and just land on the easy ones. So, today is a familiar one. Today is a familiar one, as we are in Luke 10, verse 25. This passage is familiar to many, both kind of inside the church and outside the church. It's the passage of the Good Samaritan, or it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so if you've been in the church long at all, or if you really, even if you haven't, you're probably pretty familiar with this story. And you probably have a pretty decent understanding of it being something about kindness, social justice. Something about caring for the needy, caring for the poor, the outcast, and so on. In fact, uh, if you see anybody in the world do something good for somebody else, they're immediately nicknamed Good Samaritan. So it's a very common Phrase, common and used term, but this particular parable is not really so much about how to be good. It's not really so much about how to be good or how to care for the poor. And while, yes, there are certainly principles from this that we can pull from that and apply to our lives. It's not really what this is uh, primarily about. There's plenty of passages about how to care for the poor, but the main point of this passage is not about that, not primarily. Rather, this story, most, like most of Jesus' parables, are about salvation. They're about the kingdom. They're about uh, salvation, eternal life, which is really what's at, at stake here. It's a part of the, the question that's being answered. And there's, like most of his parables, there's typically only one major point. There's typically only one major theme or one major uh, object lesson that Jesus wants to get across. And so I think this is important to hear that we tend to treat Jesus's parables kind of like Pilgrim's Progress. Like we look at Jesus's parables and we think that every little city, every town, every person has a little nuance of of truth to them. But the reality is that typically the context is what is going to show us exactly what Jesus is driving at with his one main point. And it's the context of the passage that helps us understand that point. And so we come to the lesson of the parable, understanding that this is really about one main thing, salvation. This is about salvation. We also remember that Jesus shares parables. If we remember back to the parable of the soils, that Jesus usually will share parables as a way of revealing truth and concealing truth. He uses them as a way to conceal the truth from the wise and reveal it to the childlike. In fact, this is what he is rejoicing over just a few verses earlier in the very same chapter. Verse 21 of this chapter, uh, chapter 10, he's he's rejoicing. He says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Speaking of eternal things. Speaking of eternal things. And so Jesus has a very big heart for the humble. He has a very big heart for the humble, the childlike, the ones who are eager to learn. And therefore, kind of by logical conclusion, Jesus hates pride. You'd see he's rejoicing over the revealing and the concealing. He's equally happy to have his truth revealed to the child as he is to have it concealed from the proud, from the intelligent. So we must be careful. We must be careful not to be the one he wants to conceal it from. And so in this context, Jesus is using what we'll find is a very particular story or a very particular parable as a way of answering a very particular question from a very particular person. It's narrow. It's narrow. It's a very particular person, namely a wise person, an intelligent person, a self-righteous person, a person who is seeking, it says here in the text, to justify himself, and in doing so, his efforts are aimed at bringing Jesus down as a lawbreaker. That's his goal. That's his goal. And so the Good Samaritan is not a parable designed to teach this particular person about how to be kind or good. It's not a story about how to be a better person and then go and fulfill the law. But rather, Jesus is using this story that we'll find, spoiler alert, by the way, he's using it as a mirror. He's using it as a mirror, a mirror that will reveal the standard. What is the standard of true agape love? What is God's holy, righteous standard of true agape love? And in, with this mirror, he will, he will reveal what kind of love the law, the law, really demands of us. What kind of person really belongs in the kingdom of God? And so as you look in the mirror, and as I have looked in the mirror over the last week or so, it should reveal that we are not good. We are not good in in our our own strengths. We actually, by on our own, we don't belong in the kingdom of God. We don't belong in the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you need a new heart, Mr. Lawyer. Mr. Lawyer, you need a new heart. In your natural human, self-loving condition, you cannot do anything good. You cannot do anything good, but rather you are in desperate need of mercy. Do you see that, Mr. Lawyer? Do you see that? And what will you do? What will you do with that truth? What will you do with that truth, Mr. Lawyer? We all have a little lawyer inside of us. And so from this text... From this text, we should see a few things today. We should see, one, how Jesus speaks to and shares truth with such a person, with a wise person, someone who feels that they are are good in and of themselves. You ever meet anybody like that? You ever share the gospel with somebody like that that says, I'm a good person, I know it? Deep down, this is how you shared the gospel with them. Jesus is showing us the way. Number two, we should see a warning in and of ourselves against self-righteousness, probably the, the number one sin amongst the church. We should see a warning against self-righteousness and self-justification. And number three, number three, we see Jesus calling a sinner to do something he can't do, like change his heart. To be dependent on God is what He's calling him to do. But we should also see that we as ones who have received mercy, as ones who have been given such lavish mercy and have been given new hearts, we have in this body have been given new hearts, how we should go and do likewise. These are some of the four things we should see. So as we go to God's word this morning, let's pray. Let's pray again for God to soften our hearts Give us eyes to see his beauty, his glory, his holiness, namely in his word and in his law and in Christ, that it would have a massive effect on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you. We come to you, God, because you are holy and we are not. Not on our own. But you have made us holy in your son. So I pray, God, you would give us eyes to see our need. Our need for continual mercy in our lives. Continual grace in our lives. Give us eyes to see, God, the mercy that we have received. Point us, oh God, to the lavishness of your love. Point us, oh God, to the holiness of your word. Point us to the holiness of your character, the holiness of your standard, Lord, and let us Let us reflect on that and meditate on that and realize, Lord, how apart from your grace, how much we fall, fall very, very short of holiness and being righteous and how much we need you. Do that work in us, O God, that it would have a full effect that once we have received such mercy and once we have received such lavish love, how it should have an effect on how we bestow that same love to others. Jesus name. Amen. Okay. So by now you should be at Luke chapter 10, verse 25 uh, and follow along with me. Verse 25, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said, And who is my neighbor? Stop there for a minute. Stop there for a minute. So as we come to this point of the story, we come to the point of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, his journey to the cross. We're kind of in the midst of a celebration of sorts. If you look again at the section just ahead of this that Brian preached on last week, we see that the 70 or so disciples had just come back they're, they're really excited. They're pumped because they, they believe that they have the authority of Christ. They're, they're giving Jesus the glory to be able to cast out demons, and they're excited. And Jesus is saying, you think that's cool? You should realize that your name is actually written in the book of life. Your name has been written down in a book from eternity past, and because of that, you're going to be saved. You're going to be in the kingdom. Celebrate that. So they say, okay, so they're celebrating. Jesus is rejoicing. The disciples are rejoicing. And then stands up a lawyer, like, want, want. <laughs> like a wet blanket on the, on the whole celebration. And he stands up, right? He stands up, and he's, this lawyer, we should understand, he's referred to as a scribe. He's a scribe or an expert in regards to the law. And that's, that's not the judicial law like you would see like in Rome or in, in the United States here, but this was namely in the Torah, the law of Moses. He was an expert in the law. He was an expert of the scriptures. He was the interpretation of the scriptures. If you wanted to know what the law was about and what it meant, you went to the lawyer, the expert in the law. In fact, he had no authority, uh, but the Pharisees that would consult this lawyer did. So he was like legal counsel for the Pharisees. If the Pharisees wanted to indict somebody for breaking the law of Moses or for, Breaking the Sabbath, or for doing things like they thought Jesus was doing, they would consult the scribe. And he would say, Yes, that is law breaking. Go get him. Okay, so that was his role. And the lawyer stands up and it says that he seeks to put him to the test. So we see that this lawyer is not sincere. We see that he's actually trying to tempt or entrap. That's what the word test means. He's trying to entrap Jesus, and that was his goal. In fact, you probably understand the kind of, kind of question he's asking. If you've ever asked a question that you already know the answer to, or you believe you already know the answer to, what, what are you trying to do? Right? You're, you're trying to see if they know what you know already. You're trying to see if they understand at the same level that you understand that. You're trying to see, does, does this guy get it like I get it? And if he doesn't, this would be a heinous crime for him to answer this very important question incorrectly. And call himself a teacher or a rabbi. And that's exactly what the lawyer is doing. And so he asks a question about eternal life. He asks, us a question, he asks Jesus a question about eternal life. And so that brings us to our main point this morning. Our main point this morning is this. Is that the, only the righteous. Only the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. Only the righteous will inherit eternal life. And so the teacher, he had, or I'm sorry, the lawyer asks, he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? And so this is a good question. This is the ultimate question, in fact. You see, Jews understood, Jews understood that life begins for humans, but it never ends. It never, ever ends. We are not eternal, but we do have a beginning, but we do have a life that never ends. It lasts forever and ever and ever. For the rest of eternity, you will live. Even though your body may die, your soul will last forever. Your consciousness will last forever. And no matter how much culture today wants to tell you to just focus on this life only, to just focus on this life and believe that this is all there is, I'm telling you today, the scripture is telling you today, even the lawyer is telling you today, don't buy that message. Don't buy it. You will live forever. You will live forever and ever, either in the presence of God, in bliss, in joy, and in perfect love, or in hell, out of his presence, under his wrath, There's only two choices, and the Jew especially understood this. On the back of your handout, if you have it, you'll see some scripture references, and the first one you'll see should be Daniel 12. Daniel 12, verse 2, it says, "...many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt." Any Jew would have known this passage. Any Jew would have known this passage. And it's a passage from the, the prophet Daniel. It's basically saying that in the last days, in the last days, some will be raised up to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That word for contempt, it means abhorrence or to abor- be abhorred, which it's kind of a hard word to say. So now I know why they translated it Contempt. But it means to be treated with disgust. It means to be treated with disgust or hatred, not love. The disgust of God forever. The hatred of God forever. The wrath of God forever. It's an everlasting hatred or everlasting life. Those are your choices. This was the promise. And every Jew would have known this passage, and so it was the topic this idea of eternal life, it was the topic. It was the top of mind question. In fact, Jesus has asked this question on numerous occasions. And he brings up and he speaks of eternal life more times than I have really time to discuss today. He talks about eternal life constantly, constantly. So, this is a good question. But the lawyer is asking with the wrong intentions. He's asking with the wrong intentions, with the wrong heart, and with the wrong motivation. And in his mind, he even has the wrong answer. Sort of. Sort of. So the lawyer believes that there is a work, that there is a work that can be done to inherit eternal life. So already the question is foolish. Already the question is foolish. Already he has forgotten the new covenant. He should have known the new covenant, too, that says, I will do it, says the Lord. I will do it. I will give you a new heart. I will make you clean. I will give you my spirit. I will put my law within you, within your heart, for my namesake, for my glory. I will do it, says the Lord. He forgot that it's not up to him. So the scribe of the Lord has the wrong answer in mind. But you'll find Jesus' evangelism strategy is that he answers this fool according to his folly. He answers this fool according to his folly. Subpoint one, a man, a man that is above the law will never repent. A man that is above the law will never repent, but a man that realizes he's under the law feels the weight of it. Once a man realizes he's under the law, will feel the weight of it. Jesus, knowing this man's heart, he knowing this man's or this lawyer's intentions, he responds back. He says, well, what's in the law? What does it say to you? He flips the question back on him. Another way of saying this phrase is, what's in the law or how do you recite it? That's kind of another way of interpreting that. How does it read to you? So Jesus flips the question back on him. And he knows the lawyer knows the answer already. And the answer is right in a sense. But in another sense, it is dead wrong. In another sense, it is dead wrong. So the lawyer, what he does, he he recites the Shema. The Shema, which is a summation of the entire law. It's a summation of the entire Ten Commandments and the entire law that flows from it, and it's from Deuteronomy 6, and then the lawyer adds on Leviticus 19 attached to that, which was common for them to do. This, is, uh, this or some version of this is something they would recite or pray pretty much daily. And so, in a way, Jesus is saying, you know the answer, Mr. Lawyer. You, you say this or recite this every single day. What is it? You tell me. You tell me. If one must do something, what is it you must do? To which the lawyer answers. He says, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And he adds on, and your neighbor as yourself. This is the perfect summation of the law of God. This is the perfect summation. As you look at the law of God and all that flows from the Ten Commandments, you'll see that every action that is asked of a person is, is really rooted in love God or love neighbor. If you love God, you'll obey these commandments. And if you love neighbor, you will act accordingly. In fact, Matthew twenty two forty, 40, Jesus says that, answers the very same question. And at the end of that, he says, On these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. So Jesus agrees. So the question is, did he get it right? Is this how you enter eternal life? Did he get it right? Jesus says in verse 28, says you've answered correctly. So I guess he did. He said, "Do this and you'll live." Go ahead. Do that. Love God, love your neighbor. Do that, you'll live. You will. It's so simple, right? Just love God perfectly. It's so simple, right? Just love your neighbor perfectly. Do that. You'll live. See, Jesus does not answer this man's question, right? Because he knows his legalistic heart. He knows his legalistic heart. And in the same way that he answered the rich young ruler who asked him the same question, this this rich young ruler who loved his money more than God, He points this lawyer who loves his own righteousness more than God, more than his neighbor, he points him to the law. He points him to the law that this lawyer supposedly loves. Paul tells us in Romans 3, Romans 3.20, that by the law, no man will be justified. For the law does not justify, but what does it do? It reveals our unrighteousness. It reveals our sin. You see, in order for the law to bring justification, in order for the lawyer to, to do this and answer this question right and do this right, in order for the law to actually allow you to inherit eternal life, the, the Bible says that you must obey it perfectly. You must obey it absolutely, without fail, 100% perfect. Perfect. In fact, James 2 tells us, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble and even in one point breaks the whole law. Break the whole law. So let's look at it real quick. Let's look at this law that God has for us. this, This holy, righteous law. It says love. Love. This is an agape love. This is an agape love, one that includes all of your being. All of your being. It says, love the Lord your God with some of your heart. No, it says all of your heart, all of your affections, all of your treasures are to be wrapped up perfectly in God. Perfectly in God. Treasure nothing else more than God. Love God. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. All of your strength. Like everything you're going to put your hand to. Everything you're going to put your legs to. Everything you're going to engage every muscle in. All your strength. And all of your being. All of your mind. Every thought. Every thought has to be perfectly loving towards God. All the time. How are you doing? And then he adds... And love your neighbor like you love yourself. As if the first one wasn't hard enough. Jesus points this man to the law. And you'll notice he doesn't point him to the gospel. He doesn't point him to the gospel. He points the man to what should have been very bad news. He points this lawyer to what should have been very bad news, not good news. This man's question of what must I do? What works must I perform? He points him to the law. I think think that if this man was sincere I think if this man was actually humble if he was at the point of realizing that Jesus I have not kept the law if that was his heart I have not kept the covenants I'm not a righteous man if he were more like the tax collector of Luke 18 that we'll see later on beating his chest saying have mercy on me have mercy on me If he was to come and say, I don't deserve the kingdom, I'm a wretch, I am a filthy sinner, but I I still want in, I want to be with you, Jesus, I want to be with God forever, how can I be forgiven? I think Jesus would have said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, and he passes out from death, he passes over death and out of judgment and into life forever i think he would have said that to him but that was not the heart of this lawyer where is your heart this morning where is your heart this morning when you hear the law when you read the standard of perfect righteousness without which no one will see the kingdom of god when you hear this high standard are you are you puffed up or are you brought low Do you see yourself justified in your good deeds? Or do you see a desperate need for mercy? As a believer, are you reminded of the chasm between you and your God? You and this holy God and the greatness of mercy that bridged it. Are you reminded of that? Or has the cross shrunk over the years? No one should hear these commandments and think, oh, I measure up. No one should hear, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and say, nailed it, nobody. In fact, even the lawyer should have known this because the Psalms speak of it. The Psalms say, no one is good. The Psalms say, no one is good, no, not one. No one loves God, no one seeks after God, nobody, not you, not me, not this lawyer. And this is what Paul is quoting in Romans 3. So, one quick flip of the question. So, I love Jesus. He's so smart. With one quick flip of the question, one answer, Jesus has both affirmed the law. He's affirmed it. He said, Yes, the law is good. He affirms the old covenant. He doesn't deny the law, but he holds it up as a mirror. He holds it up as a mirror. And he held this man to an impossible standard that should have resulted in a cry for help. It should have resulted in a cry for help. It should have resulted in a cry for mercy. It should have resulted in the realization that I have not obeyed even the most foundational command. I have not loved God. I have not loved my neighbor, but instead I have loved in this way with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. I have loved only myself. You've loved that way before. Yourself. Myself. This is why Jesus calls us to continual self-denial. To continual self-denial because we cannot love God and love ourselves. At the same time, we cannot love others like we should while loving ourselves. Jesus is pointing this man to the only thing that will reveal to this lawyer his true nature. And I believe that if he saw it, if he saw his nature the way it was, he would hate it. If he was given eyes to see the wretchedness he was before God, he would would hate it. He would deny himself. But instead, he seeks to justify himself. Instead, he seeks to justify himself. Point two is this unjust is the man that seeks to justify himself. Unjust is the person who seeks to justify himself. Look at the lawyer's response. Luke tells us, wishing to justify himself, he said, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? This man, like many of us, like many of us in this very room, when convicted of sin, will seek not mercy, but to self-validate. You ever been called out and just and you immediately start just self-validating it or excusing it or trying to justify it? Me too. Right? I'm not that bad. Right? I mean, I'm not perfect, uh, but I'm better than my neighbor. Right? I, I love God. I mean, I-, I don't hate him. I don't hate him. You ever heard that? Yeah, you do. I do pretty good. right? I give to the poor. I give to the poor. I, I come to church. I-, I-, I stop cussing, sort of. Sort of. I'm better than most. I'm <laughs> better than most. Like, Really? Really, that's where you're going to put your chips? That's what you're going all in on? I'm I'm better than most? We're, We're talking about eternity. We're talking about forever. And you're going to base your eternal security and hope of living in the kingdom with a holy triune God forever on the basis of I'm better than most? As if that was ever the standard. As if that was God's righteous decree. Just be better than the next guy. No, you must be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as I am perfect. But this is what we do. This is what we do. We lower the holiness of God. We lower the standard of God to meet our standards in order to justify ourselves. How foolish is this? How foolish is this to readily, readily, think about this, to readily believe a lie about the holiness of God just to ease your conscience. To live a guilt-free few years here on earth and then shame and guilt and punishment forever. All because you didn't want to admit that you can't measure up To a high, holy standard of the one true God. You can't. I can't. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. That is exactly what we do, though, when we justify ourselves. We bring God's righteous requirements down to our meager standards. We lower the bar in order to give some kind of false assurance we do this even as believers, even as believers, even after we have come to the realization we can't, and we put our faith in Christ, and we start to walk, we start to walk out this Christian life, we start to think like, well, God doesn't really want me to give my life fully to the kingdom, does he? He doesn't really want me to risk everything for him. I mean, I'm better than most Christians. And our self-justifying question might be, well, what is mission Really? What does mission really look like? Or what is, it, what is self-denial really? I mean, I, I deny myself. Right. I turned off the TV last night, and I did the self-denial. What is carrying my cross really? We try to rephrase the questions to lower the bar to meet up where we're already walking. And that is what this lawyer is doing. Look at his question. He had just heard from God himself what he must do. He must love God and love neighbor. And notice he doesn't ask, how do I do it? How do I love God? Or how how do I do the will of God? In fact, he skips over God altogether. Like, yeah, I've got that down. I love God and and I love my neighbor too, really, unless, unless you want to change the definition of neighbor. Unless you want to change the definition of neighbor, Jesus. You'll remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, that Jesus said, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. Who do you think was telling them that? It was the scribes, it was the Pharisees, it was the religious elite of that day. And so this man is essentially trying to kind of move the goalpost. He's trying to move the goalpost so that he can be the decider of who his neighbor is and who isn't. He can decide who I can love and who I can hate makes it pretty easy to to fulfill that law if that's the standard, right? I can get to decide who my friend and my enemy is, and I'll love my friends, and I'll hate my enemies. That works. Right? This man is seeking with, is not seeking with a diligent heart to know what to do, but rather he's asking like a solidifying question of what he believes he is already doing. And so Jesus is, he's not going to answer the question. It's the wrong question. Who's my neighbor is the wrong question. Instead, Jesus will actually put this kind of love that God is talking about in this law, he will put this kind of love on display. Really, Jesus could have just moved on. He could have moved on. He could have declared of unrighteous, unfit for the kingdom, and said, all right, I'm done. I'm going to go back to my disciples now. But he, he didn't do that. Instead, instead he, he, kind of, he kind of demonstrates this, this love he's talking about to this enemy of his. He points him to the law one more time. He points him to the law one more time, but by way of a parable. By way of a parable, of a picture, of a story, to kind of set the record straight of what this actually looks like. A parable of contrast, really, between how we love in our fallenness and how we should love. The parable is not about who do I have to love and then by logical conclusion conclusion Who do I not have to love? It's a parable about being a neighbor to everyone. It's a parable about being a neighbor to everyone. It's about what true agape, wholehearted love, what it actually looks like. It is a picture of what fulfilling this law and what it actually looks like. Let's look at the parable starting in verse 30. Starting in verse 30, it says... Jesus replied, this is his reply to the question. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. Okay, so just kind of following along with the parable, we first see a man leaving Jerusalem and going to Jericho. This man was most likely a Jew seeing as where he was coming from. Not many people left Jerusalem that wasn't a Jew. Right? And the, and the path he was taking was a very well-known real path. It's a very dangerous path. It was, it was no surprise to the, to the listener that this man going down the road by himself would have been attacked, or would have met some bandits or some thieves. We must understand that the point of this first section is that Jesus is purposely accentuating the severity of this man's loss. This man's loss is severe. This man's beating is severe. We see that this man is stripped of all his clothes. They took everything. They left nothing behind. He had absolutely nothing to his name. They not only took everything, but he's also beaten. He's beaten. The the Greek has it as laid blows on him, like heavy pounding of blows on him to the point where he was in critical condition. He was in critical condition and And then he was left. He was left in a very dangerous place with absolutely nothing left to die. In fact, if nobody comes along, he is dead. He's in critical condition. So we see in verse 31, by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, so he did see him. We know that. (laughs) He saw him, and then he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him... He passed by on the other side. So you can imagine the lawyer's face is kind of lighting up a bit. All right, good. We got the priest. We got the, the Levite coming. They're going to they're gonna be the heroes of the story. Right? He's thinking, this is going to be great. Descendants of Aaron, they're going to do the right thing here. Whatever he thinks that is. And surely he will help this gentleman. In fact, a priest and a Levite, right, who was, the Levite was kind of like a priest right-hand man coming from Jerusalem. They were most likely have just gotten done making sacrifices or burnt offerings. They were doing some good things for God. They'd been like fulfilling their religious duties and probably felt justified in their relationship with God, much like this lawyer did because of the things the, that they were performing. They felt good with who they were with God. Peace with God through ritual and sacrifice. Peace with God through mental knowledge of the scriptures. But like this lawyer, they did not know God. They don't know him. These men of the cloth, just like the religious men of their time and ours, just like many of us, if we're honest, disregard that God had said, I desire mercy, I desire compassion over sacrifice. Sub point three, God desires mercy over ritual. God desires mercy over ritual and love over duty. Love over duty. The priest and the Levite of all people should have been the ones who understood God's call to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. They should have understood that. These men were not ignorant of the law. They knew God's decree for mercy, but much like us who know the word of God, we just don't do it. We know the word of God, but we just don't do it. They could not be bothered to help this man. Why? I think it's clear from the passage that they don't have compassion in their heart. They lack the essential emotion of compassion. They have no love in their heart. Why? Because they have no love for God, and therefore no love for this man. Even us today, right, even as as Romans 5 says, God has poured out his love into our hearts. We don't show compassion to those in need as we should. We hear of people in need and hope someone else will do it. Someone else has got it. Much like these men who cross the street to avoid the dying and helpless man, we often avoid people who are needy. We avoid people who are longing for relationships. They're alone, they're alone. And worst of all, oftentimes we, in like our little holy huddle, we avoid people who are dead in their sin. They're dead in their sin, on their way to eternal death forever, They're truly desperate for mercy, and we walk around the other side. I love CBC, though. I have to tell you, I love, one thing I love about this body is how gracious and forgiving we are. I have seen it firsthand. We are very gracious and forgiving and willing to help when someone needs help. The group me blows up when somebody needs help. I love it. We do mercy well. But we, self-included, have much room to grow. We have much room to grow. I don't know about you, but I I feel the weight of this law, love perfectly, like this, bearing down on me, calling me guilty. Guilty is charged. I don't love this way. Which should cause me to remember that just like this lawyer and just like these men in the parable, we too were at one time in desperate need of mercy. And we got it. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put, on him, his own, or he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So in contrast, look at the contrast that Jesus sets up in this story. In contrast to kind of the careless, apathetic, lovelessness of the religious elite, we see a new and final character arrive on the scene. A character that certainly the lawyer had no idea would be coming. A Samaritan. Now again, I don't have time to kind of divulge all of the hatred and animosity that Jews and Samaritans had. But it was big. I mean, it was a family feud of the ages. They absolutely hated each other. Love your neighbor, hate hate the Samaritan was probably a valid statement in that culture. And I assure you, the feeling was mutual on the Samaritan side. They did not like each other. Look back to Luke 9. When Jesus entered into Samaritan village, what did they do? They rejected him because he was on his way to Jerusalem. They hated the Jews. But that's the point. We don't get to choose our neighbor. We don't get to choose our neighbor. When Jesus said the greatest commandment is love God and the second is like it, love neighbor. Why is the second like it? It's because all people are made in the image of God. All people are made in the image of God, regardless of race, creed, gender, religious differences, location, in the womb, out of the womb, level of development, level of character, friend or enemy, family or stranger. All people are made in God's image. That's what makes us unique. So when we look at people, we should see the image of God. And if you love God, do you think you'll love his image? absolutely the Samaritan took no account of this man's relationship to him and I'm sure he knew that he was a Jew I'm sure he knew that he was his enemy but all that went away when he saw him the passage says that he saw him and it says that when he saw him he felt compassion he felt compassion meaning he actually felt something his heart was not hard but soft his heart moved His heart loved, his heart felt pity, he felt sorrow for this man, this human, this image bearer of God. This is the differentiation between how we love, how the lawyer loves, the priest, the Levite, and how the Samaritan loves. He felt compassion. This enemy of the Jew, he loved. He looked upon the weak, the broken, the enemy. And he felt compassion, a desire in his heart to show mercy. And look at what this produces. You want to know if your heart is compassionate? It produces something like this. It produces a lavish, lavish giving of himself to this stranger. It says he poured his oil and wine to nurse this man's wounds he poured it he didn't dab it he, he lavishly gave the last of his sustenance to this man oil and wine were like a first aid kit this man had for himself on his own journey and instead of keeping it for himself he lavishly gave it to this man in need it says that he put him on his own beast it's probably a donkey and he let the stranger ride while he walked Let the stranger ride on his own animal while he walked. He brought him to an inn, and he said to stay with him all night. He stayed with him all night, caring for him, mending to his wounds. And then on the next day, on the next day, he gives the innkeeper two denarii, which we should understand is like two months worth of staying in this inn. I would have paid for this man to stay in this inn for 2 months without having to spend a dime of his own money. Why? Cuz he had nothing. They took everything. They took everything. And then he writes basically a blank check. He writes a blank check to the innkeeper. And says whatever this man needs, take care of it. I mean, If there's ever an opportunity for the innkeeper to take advantage of him, he didn't care. He didn't care. He, He gave lavishly. This is lavish and unfathomable love. The Samaritan gave everything, and he poured out everything for this man, this stranger, his enemy. So what's the point? We have never loved like this. We have never loved like this. Except maybe ourselves. I've never loved like this. No one has loved like this. Especially not an enemy, not a stranger, and certainly not every day of our life. Certainly not every day, every moment of our life. That's the point. Jesus has just held up a mirror of perfect and lavish love. Perfect and lavish love that has contrasted our own self-serving, self-loving hearts. We love ourselves this way, but we have never loved anyone else that way perfectly all the time. Which is why Jesus finishes with a question that reverses the lawyer's question. He reversed it. Verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So it's not about who's your neighbor. It's not about who's your neighbor. Wrong question, Mr. Lawyer. The question is, what does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean to be a neighbor? What is the heart of a neighbor? The true neighbor... The one who is compelled by love to show compassion and love to all who are made in God's image. One who lavishly gives of themselves to others perfectly, daily, without fail. How you doing? This is the person who fulfills this law. This is the person who will inherit eternal life. This is the standard of our holy God. And so the lawyer answers correctly. He says, the one who showed mercy to him. The one who demonstrated a heart of compassion and mercy. And so Jesus says, okay, cool, go do it. You got this? Go do the same. To which that should have been like a dagger in the heart of a lawyer. Point four, final point. You can't be righteous on your own. You need a foreign righteousness. You can't be righteous on your own. You need a foreign righteousness. This dagger that this dagger that Jesus just gave the lawyer that should have shattered any hope in himself. It should have shattered any hope in himself to be able to fill this law on his own. The dagger of now you go live this way, good luck. Right, should have been the, the dagger that kind of left him like the man in the parable. Broken, naked, ashamed, dead on the street, crying out for help, in need of desperate mercy. But that, that's the catch. You can't go and do the same. You can't go and do the same. And what's amazing is, what's amazing is that if this lawyer, this self-righteous lawyer, had been broken by that truth and cried out for mercy, Jesus would have given it to him. He would have shown mercy, but there is one, there is one man who has lived this way, there is one man who lived this way, you see, we were the man beaten and left for dead, we were the man beaten by sin and by the kind of the need to be self-righteous and carry the heavy burden of, of ritual and works. We're beaten down by sin, trying to earn our own salvation. But there is one who went even further than financial loss for us. There is one who went further than just kind of mending our wounds. There is one who showed mercy and compassion by giving his life for the stranger, for his enemy, for those that hated God, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's lived this law perfectly. He's the only one who lived this love perfectly perfectly. For those that love self, he took on our sin. He's the only one who looks like this with compassion. He's the only one who is able to fulfill this impossible law. He's the only one who is able to live out this law perfectly every moment of every day and strength and heart and soul and mind and body and thought. He did it perfectly. And then he went to the cross He went to the cross and he paid your price for sin. He paid your price for sin and he rose from the dead giving you justification. Meaning he clothed you in his righteousness. His perfect life given to you. Yes. Yes, your sin must be dealt with. Jesus paid the price. Yes, you must be perfectly righteous to inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus offers you his. So if this is you if, you, if you're like this lawyer, you're the one clinging to your own works this morning. You're, you're hearing this and you're just kind of self-justifying it as I'm talking to you. Don't be like this lawyer. Don't seek to justify yourself. Don't be like the person in James that says when he sees himself in the mirror and then walks away, forget what kind of man he is. Look in the mirror intently and see what kind of man God is showing you to be. Today, let go of your pride. Let go of your self-serving need to self-justify. Use your eyes that God is wanting to give you and see that you don't measure up. You don't measure up. You could never get into the kingdom of a holy God. You would ruin it. I would ruin it. So cling to Jesus. Transfer your hope from self to him. He offers you his life. He offers you his death in exchange for yours. He offers you a new heart with new affections that will grow in love for God and love for others. It will. It will. As for those of us who have known this mercy, we have felt this mercy. We've been given this mercy. We've embraced this mercy. We have clung to Christ. We must see and remember this mercy every single day. Why? Because we desire. He's given you a new heart. So that means that you desire to be a people that are filled with compassion, not pride, love of others, not self. Don't we? Don't we desire that with all our heart? May we be a people then that pray continually. It's the only way you're getting that heart is from prayer. Pray continually, think of it, and in light of this passage, in light of this perfect requirement of the law, in light of the fact that you have been given lavish, lavish, pouring out, taking care of you, kind of mercy and grace upon grace. Be a person that prays. Be a person that prays every day for a heart of compassion. This is my prayer. God, give me a heart of compassion. I don't have it like I should. It's not there yet. I'm not fully sanctified yet, but I long for the day when I love like you love. I want to be like you. Give me a heart of compassion. Give me a heart that loves you, Lord, like I'm supposed to. Give me a heart that loves others, therefore, who are in need. I want to be like you, Jesus. I want to be like my Savior. I want, to, I want this joy. I want this greatness. I want the joy of serving and loving others. I want this, Lord. I don't care what it costs. Pray like that. Watch the Lord work in your heart. May we be, as a church, this kind of person who feels compassionately, loves unconditionally, and meets the needs of those who are needy, not to earn salvation. Not to get into the kingdom, but because as ones who have already been shown mercy, we of all people, we of all people should be a people of mercy. Let's pray.